Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. As far as hacking, I think it was Russia, but I think we also get hacked by other countries and other people. And I can say that, you know, when when we lost 22 million uh, names and everything else that was hacked recently, they didn't make a big deal out of that. That was something that was extraordinary. That was probably China. Uh, we had we have much hacking going on. Well, I think it was Russia, and I think it could have been other people in other countries. Uh, could have been a lot of people interfered. I think it was Russia, but I think it was probably other people and or countries. It was Russia, and I think it was probably others also. Well, the Russians had no impact on our votes whatsoever, uh, but certainly there was meddling, and probably there was meddling from other countries and maybe other individuals. So that's a montage played by Fox and Friends this morning of the president on numerous occasions blaming the Russians. This idea that he doesn't think they had anything to do with it. Well, I mean, you have to listen to what he says, obviously. He has contradicted himself a bit, but so did President Obama. So if you didn't care when President Obama contradicted himself, then why do you care so much when Donald Trump is doing it? Oh, yeah, because you have Trump derangement syndrome. That's why. So I want to finish. I think it's important that we get the rest of the information out on the topic we were discussing just before the break. And, oh, man, this is so hard because in some ways, especially if you're really informed, if you have all the facts at your disposal, the tendency is guilty as charged. You want to just beat the person down with the facts. They start spouting off some MSNBC talking points that are completely inaccurate. And you say, well, you know. Federal Bureau of blah, 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 says yada, yada, yada. Government statistics show yada, yada. And you just start reeling off the information that you know. Facts and information aren't the only things that people rely on when they hold a view. In fact, if you really listen to what the Democrats talk about, they talk about their feelings a lot. And they come from a place of knowing that they are morally superior than everyone else. And so even when their ideas don't work, it's a, it's the, the, whole, the whole thing is, but I'm, I, have the, I come from the right place. You're a greedy capitalist and also a bigot and a racist. I am someone who loves people and cares deeply for them. And my positions support that. That is where they're coming from. So if you understand that, then you can then kind of deal with the rest of it, which is a bunch of information that isn't true. So let's get back into this just a little bit more here for, to share with you. And then uh, you can take it. And what I, I recommend above all of this, because you can be as informed as you want to be, but if you have a spirit of kind of anger and dissension, it's not going to get anywhere. And some people are picking fights with you about politics that are close to you because they just can't stand your position. So they're not looking for you to give them information to change their mind. They want you to understand their disdain for your position. They want to use their relationship with you to make you change your mind. And, and I, I find this, it's kind of like a fascinating thing with, because there's a huge difference between the way liberals and the way conservatives approach it. I know so many people who are conservatives who are perfectly willing and are able to maintain friendships with people who are liberals without bringing up politics, without ever trying to convert them or convince them that they're wrong. But with liberals, they have to find a way to get a dig in. Oh, because, you know, that's what you believe. Or, yeah, because, you know, you're a Bible thumper and, you know, you think everyone should do what you do because you're a Christian. You know, it, it's little digs like that that let you know that 
they're not okay with you not agreeing with them. It's like a personal insult. Whereas with me, I, I, I encounter liberals all the time. And if they don't agree, I'm not personally insulted, nor do I feel the need to convert them. They could be converted. And if they wanted information so that they could come to the same place of agreement that I, I resided on an issue and they asked me for information, I'm willing to share it. If they ask me for sources, I'm willing to, you know, here's a bunch of links or here's, here's the book that I read on that that changed my mind. You know, you might want to read it yourself, but that's never enough. What I find when someone opens a conversation up like that, well, I want to know why you believe so-and-so. Then at the end, they just end with insults. Well, you're just a Christian and you think that everyone should believe like you do because you're a Christian and you want to impose your theology on everyone else. When I said none of those things and the reasons why I believe what I believe. So this is a hard place because when you're coming from, uh, you, you honestly want to share facts and information so that the person can make up their own mind and the other person just wants to insult you, that's not a conversation that's worth your time to have. So we all know that government plays a role in the work of God's kingdom here on earth. Good government encourages an environment conducive for people to live together peacefully. Bad government fosters unrest and instability, but because of sin, and the fact that people are involved in all government, you're going to have government used for illegitimate means at times by people who are sinning, right? So there, in the face of that, you will often see righteous individuals who are concerned with adherence to the law will rise up and reassert their influence to promote good government and restrain evil. And this has happened over and over again in the course of the history of this country and worldwide where you see evil rise up and then you see others come in and tamp it down and, and beat it back and bring justice to the fore. So there's an author named Alvin Schmidt who wrote a book called How Christianity Changed the World. And the book documents Christian influence in government, including outlawing infanticide, outlawing child abandonment, outlawing gladiatorial games in ancient Rome, ending the practice of human sacrifice in European cultures, banning pedophilia and polygamy, prohibiting the burning of widows in India. William Wilberforce, who was a committed Christian, was the force behind the successful effort to abolish the slave trade in England. And in the United States, two-thirds of abolitionists were Christian pastors. In the 1960s, you had Martin Luther King Jr., who was a Christian pastor, who helped to lead the civil rights movement against racial segregation and discrimination. So time and time again in history, you'll see Christians empowered by God, called to do a good work, who then bring about a radical change in society that benefits everyone and is enshrined into law by government. So we should work through civil, civil authorities for the advancement of justice and the human good. And we should be vocational leaders. We should be civic leaders. We should be volunteers. We should be working in our communities. And in the personal private relationships, uh, I, I've, I've, evolved, if you will. I hate it when people say that, but you know, it's kind of appropriate. I I used to feel like it was, you know, fire in the sword, the sword of truth, you know, rage kitty for Jesus. You, you come at me with some lies and I'm going to disinfect it with the truth. And I've come to realize by, you know, getting older, obviously, and, and, and by observing some of other people who know how to deal with this well, that if, if I know the place that I'm operating from is one of correctness and truth, and I believe in what I'm sharing, and I believe that, um, you know, that I've prayed over the position and that, I, that this is where God has me, 
and I'm in agreement with my husband and, you know, I've read and researched, then there's no need for me to be angry. There's no need for me to allow someone else to provoke me into anger about these topics. And, and I'm serious. I've, I've evolved on this. I used to get ticked and, you know, let people have it. Now I don't. Um, it doesn't mean I'm perfect on it. It doesn't mean people don't still irk me, you know. Um, but I do see a place where God has called us as Christians. If, if you are informed and you know where you're coming from and, you, and you've prayed over it and you've, you've got the comfort of knowing that God has not told you otherwise, then you don't have to be angry. In fact, the more calm you are, it's like 50% of the people will view your calmness. It's an insult to them and it makes them more angry and they get really vigorous and they put their finger in your face and they'll get in your personal space because they need to provoke a reaction from you because without that reaction, they can't feel like they've validly engaged you. And why aren't you emotional? My goodness, you're a horrible person. You're a bigot. You're a racist. What's wrong with you? And then the other half of the people will rightly see your calm demeanor and your fact giving and the fact that you're not easily provoked as something that requires investigation. And it's those people who will actually hear you say, I found this on this website. And they may go there and then they may go straight to think progress and, you know, completely obliterate any facts that they learned by, you know, all the misinformation over there and it didn't do any good. But there have been people, it's not, it doesn't happen a ton. This is the thing. You, you, you want to think, oh, I've had you know, thousands of people who said they've heard me and they've, they've changed their minds. That's not the case. But I have had people reach out to me in email and say, you know, I heard you talking about this book. And I think you're funny and that's why I listen to your show, but I disagree with you like all the time. I've had people call in and say that. And so I read the book and at first, like first couple chapters, I was just mad. And I, I, I said to myself, I don't have to read this. It's not like she's going to know, but I did. And then they go on with a few paragraphs of their personal, it's a personal history for them that brought them to their previous belief. They've read the book now and now they're talking to people and kind of getting some, you know, some input from people that they respect and now they're changing their mind on something. And it's so amazing because it's not the, you know, you feel like you're just expounding on something and you're giving these resources and it's just going so well. And that can change people's minds. But other times it's just that they hear something of interest that they then want to go investigate for themselves because that's how I became a conservative. It wasn't that someone told me you're wrong. You're a horrible person. You know, you believe that abortion is something that should be the law of the land. What's wrong with you? That's not it at all. I was listening to a Christian radio and I heard him contrasting the, what the Bible says with what a politician was saying. And I was like, oh, that has to be wrong. So I got my Bible out. And then I was like, well, but is this applicable? Like I, it was a struggle. And I came to the place where I am now politically on my own. It wasn't anybody dragging me, kicking and screaming or insulting me into this position. So we have to be calm. We have to be wise. We have to remember, so, you know, Christians can come in all political stripes, that anyone who's a Christian that you're fighting with over politics, this is someone you're going to spend eternity with. So what are you going to do? Like find the opposite corner of heaven and hope never to bump into them? Or is it that you hope that, you know, arguing and fighting will change their mind? It's very unlikely that arguing and fighting will change their mind. But I will say that 
if we can find a way to calmly share and we have to be prayerfully, we have to be asking the Lord, when I come to this person again, this, this is a person who is constantly attacking me on politics. Lord, what do you want me to say? We're not looking for an audible response. We, we know the Lord will, t- he'll, he'll let us know what it is that he thinks we should say if, if it's nothing at all. And then go from there. This is the hardest way to do it. It is. It's the hardest way because mo- more often than not, I'm just trying to prepare you, you're going to get insulted. I don't mean you're going to hear someone say something and become insulted because you have a spirit of offense. I mean, you are going to be called an Uncle Tom. You're going to get memes that say you're raccoon dancing for white people. If you're white, you're going to be told you're a racist and a bigot and you probably want to own people as slaves. You're going to be called everything but a child of God, maligned and possibly talked about behind your back. And you'll have other people who had nothing to do with the original conversation give you a chilly reception when they see you next because they've all been told on a chat group that you're the most terrible person in the world because you, they just found out she's a Trump supporter. He supports Donald Trump. And so you have to be prepared for that too. You have to ask the Lord to give you grace and understanding and peace to be able to walk through that as well. But we know if, if you're anywhere close to where I am right now on this thing, you know that there are certain people who they're, they're in your life, but they're not really, they're not your inner circle. They're not your support system. And you may be walking something out that they're seeing, or they may be walking out something that you need to see. There's some interaction that needs to be had, but it doesn't mean every person is your closest best friend. And every person understands where you're coming from and, and everything, you know, th- th- every person doesn't serve that purpose. Some people just aren't meant to be in close communication with you and they'll make that obvious and you'll be able to see that. But for those that are your family members, the onus is on us. You know, when you know more, you do more. When you have a lot, when you've been given a lot of knowledge and understanding and wisdom, you have a lot more responsibility. So I just encourage you to pray about what God would have you to do, what he would have you to say, if you're to say anything or if you're just to kind of declare a moratorium and just say, I love you so much, I can't discuss politics with you because I don't want to fight. I just want you to feel free to believe what you want to believe because we're Americans and the same for me and for us to go on in our relationship without the politics. That's one way, but pray over all of it. God will show you what the specifics are for your situation. Um, and we'll talk about this again. We'll, we'll circle back around to this again as we get closer and closer into the politi- political season. We'll have Philip Nelson, PhD, author, uh, with us right after these messages. Stay there. You know, people often ask me, Tim, what's your favorite part of the Holy Land Tour? I've been leading Holy Land Tours for many years now. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. You know, I learned how to lead these Israel tours for my dad, who started doing them in the 60s, and then he taught me in the 80s and 90s, and now my wife Allison and I lead these tours annually to Israel, and we love going because we love seeing people's eyes when they see things, such as the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River and the Garden Tomb and the Wailing Wall. See all these things for the first time, and maybe the last time in many folks' lives, because this is a bucket list trip. We're going to be going in March. If you want a brochure sent to your mailbox, give us a call at 800-FAMILIES, 800-F-A-M-I-L-I-E-S, option 5. And we'll send you a brochure. If you want to go to the website, everything's there. 
TWHolyLand.com. TWHolyLand.com. Hello, this is Bishop Harry Jackson of Hope Christian Church in Beltville, Maryland. Jesus said you would do greater works than he did. Three places you got to go. That if you go to those places emotionally, not physically, they, Elijah and Elisha, went there physically. But you and I have to go there emotionally and spiritually. If we'll go emotionally and spiritually where they went physically, we'll come into the truths and the transforming and transferring of the mantle that happened with Elisha will happen with us in our generation. Number one, they went to Gilgal. The name Gilgal means rolling away. It's a place where Israel was circumcised the first time in the promised land after 40 years of wilderness wandering. Young people were circumcised there and they rolled away the shame of their 40 years of wandering. For every Christian leader that becomes great in the sight of the Lord, he has got to recognize that his weakness, his sin in times past, his origins, where he came up from the limitations of his own natural abilities, all those things that may cause him shame because of natural identification have to be rolled away and paid no attention to in this hour of visitation where God will be glorified. Join us this Sunday morning at 6251 Amadale Road in Beltsville or on the web at thehopeconnection.org. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. Oh, welcome back to the show, everybody. Stacy Washington, host of Stacy on the Right, here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Head over to UrbanFamilyTalk.com and register for our conference. It's August 17th and 18th. It's on marriage and family. It's going to be awesome. Lots of great speakers lined up for you. And of course, we'll get to meet. So that'll be really fun if you uh, are in Tupelo or if you would like to travel down and get the hotel. It's a nice town. It's uh, We live in St. Louis metropolitan area, so we're a mid-sized city, number 22 or 23 on radio markets. And so it's, you know, it's kind of like a city here. Um, we don't live in the city, but we have a, a downtown. Then we have like a secondary downtown. And then we have the suburbs. And from what I've seen of Tupelo, it's very much like a town with a suburban, few suburban areas around it. And of course, they have mall and they have shopping and all the other stuff that you would normally have. But it's also kind of a more small town feel. It's really, it's it's a cool town. Um, so I recommend it if you if you are uh, looking around and thinking, hey, I don't know, August seventeenth and eighteenth. Come on down. Come come listen to the content we're going to put on. It's it's a quick two days. Uh, one night, you could literally come on Friday, stay overnight till Saturday, and then be zipping off back to wherever you come from. And you will have gotten this great content that will enrich you and bless you. Um, and we're going to be we're just so glad to see you there. So think about that. Join us at urbanfamilytalk.com. You can register for the conference. Down. It's my pleasure to welcome Philip Nelson, PhD, author, and uh, just all around great guy. Thank you so much for being on today. Well, thank you for having me. 
So let's talk about goodintentionsbadconsequences.com, the latest book. Um, you have Good Intentions, Bad Consequences, Voter Information Problems. All right. Uh, voter decision-making uh, is different in a fundamental way than the kinds of decisions that we ordinarily make. Uh, the problem is that uh, a voter is voting at the same time uh, that thousands of other people are voting. And so the impact of his vote on the results of an election are minimal. And so that does not justify either the voting act itself or what one votes about. Uh, the crucial feature of my book is that people's votes are largely an extension of their conversations. And one of the things they talk about is indeed their self-interest, uh, especially if they're talking to other people with the same self-interest. Coal miners talk about what's good for coal miners. But in addition, people tend to talk about what they think is good uh, for whoever they regard as good, either the nation, the world, or the state, or the community. And these, it's possible to specify in a way what they talk about, what they want uh, when they are talking about what they think is good. Partly it's a rationalization of their own self-interest. Coal miners are also going to talk about what they think uh, are the virtues of coal mining as far as the world is concerned. But in addition to that, people are going to talk about what they think is good in a broader sense, not necessarily uh, affected by their own self-interest. Now, this is particularly true of university professors. Uh, they are actually paid, uh, especially if they're in the social sciences, to talk about what they feel is good. And that sounds uh, great. Uh, it's a marvelous virtue to talk about what they consider is good. But unfortunately, uh, they are confronted with something called confirmation bias. They tend uh, to think what is good is what they previously had thought is good, and they tried only to look at the things uh, that justify these previous positions. And now this is true uh, for both people, for both liberals and conservatives. But conservatives are more interested in their own self-interest, not in the sense that uh, others are not going to regard uh, these self-interested positions as necessarily good for the world. And the things that people regard as good uh, for their nation are sort of indicated by what they give to charity. Uh, they want uh, a more equal distribution of income, 
and they want what they consider to be a good environment. And the trouble with that is that this desire uh, is not... They don't look at the consequences of what they are actually advocating because many of these consequences are unfortunate for their position. For example, those who opt uh, for greater equality do not look at the side effects, what that does uh, to uh, total income. And they also tend to exaggerate uh, the problem, or at least uh, the problem as attributed to the present system. Uh, they do not look, for example, when they're talking about uh, more equality uh, for the black blacks, they do not look at the sources of that inequality, uh, the the lower the fact that they have less education, the fact that they have higher uh, single uh, motherhoods, uh, all those things attribute uh, are have serious effects on uh, the present income that blacks get, but they are totally ignored uh, by most of the liberals advocating uh, greater equality for the blacks, or they attribute uh, those things uh, to capitalism, which is totally unjustified in terms of the things uh, that actually produce uh, these unfortunate uh, side effects of greater equality. Of course. So, so I, I, I have a... I'm, just I'm a, sorry, can, can you talk a little louder? Sure. I, so I have a question about um, your, a part of the blurb that you have for the book. Um, I can is, barely hear you. You're saying that you have a conservative's innovative guide to understanding voter behavior. So what is innovative about the book as a guide as it pertains to how we should behave voter-wise? Well, in the, the fact that voters are not going to vote in terms of the consequences because directly in terms of the consequences is something uh, that is uh, fairly well known in the literature. But what is not known, what has not been examined, is exactly what that produces in terms of uh, political behavior. On the one hand, you have people who are dominated by this desire to be good, and a desire colored by confirmation bias where they don't actually look at the consequences. And on the other hand, you have people uh, who are operating in terms of their self-interest, uh, and uh, this is usually condemned uh, because any person's self-interest uh, sort of messes up or dominates in terms of what they view as good. And so... Uh, 
uh, that can result in some very unfortunate uh, effects. But uh, when you're talking about voting in general, it's going to be aggregate self-interest. The interest uh, in terms these interests uh, are going to be aggregated, and uh, so you get the aggregate self-interest of people with respect to many of the issues uh, that uh, confront voters. In particular, the general uh, redistribution of income, which hurts uh, if it's done too much, uh, seriously hurts uh, total income. And the, one of the big differences uh, between people voting uh, in terms of a greater equality as compared uh, to charitable contributions uh, that uh, lead to that effect is that charitable contributions are constrained. People are not going to give all that much for that cause because it's out of their own pocket. But uh, the advocates, uh, the voting advocates for greater equality are not really suffering from that because of the large group problem. Uh, and so uh, you don't really have any serious constraints on how much uh, they're actually going to vote for greater redistribution. And because of the confirmation vote uh, bias, they tend to vote too much for that. So that uh, when confronted with information about what these side effects are, they tend to be less supportive of uh, greater government uh, efforts to produce greater equality. And these are all sort of features of behavior uh, in bits and pieces have been in the literature, but have not been organized around what the ultimate consequences are for democratic decision-making. You have uh, colleges uh, dominantly talking about greater uh, equality. Uh, they... Uh, Argue. I mean, again, their sort of motto about this is uh, race, class, gender, uh, all of which, are, and their conclusion is that all of this should be remedied uh, for greater redistribution. And uh, this is an effect that is not attributable uh, to the greater knowledge that college professors uh Provide. They do provide a great deal of knowledge in a lot of areas, but not uh, in this question of whether we should be more liberal or conservative. And many of their, they really dominate in a way uh, in the electoral process uh, far more uh, than their numbers justify because people are actually influenced. Uh, by what professors say. Uh, college mm. towns are definitely liberal. Uh, people who've been to college uh, tend to be liberal. In the last election, they were uh, 
sort of almost the dominant group in supporting uh, Clinton. Uh, and this produces unfortunate results. And I think the only remedy for that is somehow uh, making colleges more aware of these unfortunate side effects that are produced by what they espouse. Yeah, uh, and I agree with you. It's something that, that really example, needs to happen. Is um, having, uh, I'm sorry, Miss. Uh, so I. Yes, yes. I we're we're getting close to the end of the program, and I want to give out uh, or the end of the segment. I want to give out your website, goodintentions-badconsequences.com. Um, fascinating research that you've done, and I encourage people to get the book and check it out. Go to the website um, and and read up more on what you're sharing here. One of the things that we we have to do is to acknowledge that these truths about liberalism exist and that it is rampant in our higher education system. And because of that, um, we have to be really wise about where we send our kids to college and, and how we interact with them once they're in those environments. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Uh, Philip Nelson, Ph.D., author of Good Intentions, Bad Consequences, Voter Information Problems. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Good to talk to you. So we have a couple of cuts that we missed, and I think we have just a minute left. I'm not sure if we have time to um, listen to cut eight. I don't know if we have time for that. Um, What we'll do is we'll catch up on those in the next segment. And I, I just I think one of the things that's happened is so there has been a prevailing wisdom that um Christians shouldn't be in politics. And we have, you know, 30 some odd million Christians, professing Christians, who also have said in polls and surveys over and over and over again that they don't vote. And it's because people say, well, I want to be in the world, but not of the world. But the way to combat what we see going on in our culture is to participate. And when we don't, we have things to deal with, like what, what's happening now, where liberals control all of academia. They've worked so hard at it. And we, while they were working at it, we were building companies and building families and uh, participating in prosperity and building wealth and whatever else we were doing. And none of those things are wrong. But if you're not voting and if you're not paying attention to where your tax dollars are going and what they're supporting and what's being taught on college campuses, then you're building wealth for somebody else to take from you and give to someone else, which is what's currently happening. Um, so we got to do better. Right now, we're going to go to the break. When we get back, I'll have the audio clips for you and also your calls. Stay right there. This is Uncommon Moments. Here's former Super Bowl winning NFL coach Tony Dungy and his wife Lauren sharing from their book, Uncommon Marriage. Marriage is like playing football. From the opening kickoff, you start off with adrenaline. But by the end of the game, you're exhausted. Marriage is the same way. You begin your first few years of life together with excitement. Then, years later, you realize you don't have enough adrenaline to keep your marriage at that intense level that you first began with. Marriages go through stages. What's important is to let your spouse know that you are committed to them for life and that you love them more than anyone else in the world. You should also lean on Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything and tell God your needs. 
Tony and Lauren Dungy, authors of Uncommon Marriage, learning about lasting love and overcoming life's obstacles together. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. Listen to Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on Urban Family Talk. She's sharp. I mean, did you hear that? Pointed. Remember that you're not only a Christian on Sunday. And insightful. Deception and lies have been accepted as the norm from the Democrats. But most of all, she's on the right. That scripture from the Bible that says the heart of the fool inclines to the left just kept popping into my mind. Stacy on the Right. Now heard weekday afternoons from 2 to 4 Central on Urban Family Talk. Abraham Hamilton III. God put us in this world at this time to be salt and light. We don't fold because of the darkness that we're facing. This is not the first time in the world's history that it's gotten dark. God has called you and I to be his ambassadors, even in this dark moment. Tune in to the Hamilton Quarter, weekdays at 5 p.m. Central on Urban Family Talk. Hi, this is Steve Tiber with 8 Days of Hope. We've been all over the country helping disaster victims who lose everything. It's truly a blessing. I really don't have the words to express. And yet, they see a glimmer of hope when a volunteer shows up. Building the home, that's the second reason we're here. The number one reason is to share the gospel and and give them hope. It's everything that's right in America. I mean, it really represents the, the best that we have to offer. That's one of the main reasons for doing it, is being able to be the hands and feet of Jesus and coming out and working with so many wonderful volunteers. I just feel like it's important in this day and age to teach a child uh, how to serve. Please go to our website, 8daysofhope.com, and click on Get Involved, submit your email address, and the next time we go anywhere with a disaster, we'll invite you to come along as well. I love coming in the job room because you can see these pieces of paper, they aren't just a piece of paper. Right. It's a family that's hurting, and it's a gospel opportunity. And you know, I just thank God, you know, for this moment. I mean, I'll be back in my home, and I know it's going to be awesome. Come love others with 8 Days of Hope. This is Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. Now Chicago is the latest town in America talking about, hey, let's just provide universal basic income. It's a plan that's been tried before. Stockton, California wants to do it. Essentially, it's free money. Uh, you know, I, it, it's oxymoronic. They tried it in Finland. It failed. How do you give people money? And this is a Democratic idea. How do you mm-hmm. give people money, Capri, and then think that they'll say, okay, I'm going to go to work now? Well, look, I mean, this $500 is not necessarily, I think it's a $500 stipend. I think it's a bad idea, to be honest. I mean, I don't think that it is, you know, where we want to invest our money, where we want to invest our tax dollars. If you're going to give somebody $500 a month, make sure that they're spending it on something like childcare. Make sure that they're spending it on something like some kind of a training or, or even being able to access, you know, transportation to be able to get to work, which is sometimes a barrier to be able to, you know, get or maintain right. employment. I don't think it's a good idea, um, but I may be in the minority of Democrats. I think Roy likes it, though. Uh, oh, you know me, I'm <laughs> Mr. Big Government Programs. Uh, I think the best way to help people with low incomes is through economic growth. Uh, we now have the record low black unemployment, record low Hispanic unemployment. The female adult unemployment is the lowest level since 1953 under Eisenhower. So more tax cuts, more deregulation, more economic growth, and these things will take care of themselves. Also, the pride of working is, is you can't put a mathematical number on it. Thank That's you both right. very much. Well, so welcome back to the show. That was uh, Making Money with Charles Payne. And he was chatting with a couple of well, conservative and a Democrat about this idea that somehow we need to start providing a universal income. That means everyone gets a check from the government for a certain amount of money, no matter if they work or not. Do you know what that is? 
That's basically saying, because we have a progressive tax system, that people who've worked and made great choices and gotten an education and then saved and scrimped and maybe, you know, not gone to the movies, not gone on vacations, not done this, not done that, so they could put their money and their resources into their education, or they've not gone on those different things because they work their way up. And the idea that everyone who's earning a good living is doing so because they're white, they're a member of the patriarchy, someone gave them a hand up or, or installed them in, into a place. I don't know any people like that. I, I mean, I have met so many successful people and it's almost a game for me to, to kind of not, it's not interview style. It's not like I come out and say, I want to know how you made all that money. It's nothing like that. I, I'm genuinely interested in the person, but as you get to know them or if they share often, they'll tell you, oh, I, I worked my way through this or I worked my way through that. I, I graduated from college and, you know, I worked my way through college. Some of them, their parents paid for them to go to college, but you still have to go to college no matter who's paying for it. You got to study. You got to earn the grades. You got to take the test. You have to show up and you have to finish. That's the whole game with college is they add in a whole bunch of stuff that you don't really need to do your career field. And you have to take those classes too and pass them. And then you have to graduate. You have to meet the graduation requirements, which are an ever-changing nebulous type of a thing for some people. And for other people who go for the sciences and the maths, it's pretty simple. It's just a, a, how many classes can I take per year for so many years until I complete all of these classes and I graduate? And how do I pay for it? And so for people who make their way the other way, the sweat of their brow, ingenuity of their mind way, where they didn't go to college, but they had an idea and they saw it through, just watch any of these shows about people pitching, you know, the, the Shark Tank and those programs like that or these programs where, sorry, I don't watch them a lot like um, the cooking shows where it's a restaurant and someone comes in and tells them what they're doing wrong so their business can flourish because uh, they have so much profanity on them. But I got to say, I, the ones I have watched, it is a real feat. It's a Herculean feat to run a business because you got so many variables besides the fact that you have to actually be there. Basically it's your baby 24 hours a day for the first almost two years. And you have to be there for everything because you don't know who you can trust and you're hiring people and you're installing people and you're starting up all these systems and systems take time to become habits, but you've got the unknown variable, which is people, people who work in retail and food service have the worst attendance rates out of any other industry there is. So any person who wants to have a staff of, say, 15 for a restaurant has to really hire between 20 and 23 people to make sure they have a, a operational staff of 15 because they have a huge number of those people, like a third of them, who will not be reliable in their attendance. And, I mean, you tell me how it works when you have a restaurant that's packed to the gills, your chef's cooking and, and you know, slinging pots and pans and turning out all the, the recipes, but you don't have anybody to serve them. So you got yourself, your husband, and any kids that are tall enough to hold a tray bringing things out of the kitchen. And things happen. Even the best employees get sick, have something happen in their family, have a sick child, have something that they need to take care of, and they can't be there 24-7. So when, it, when you meet people who've made it and they're earning a good living and you look at them and you're like, they don't deserve all that. How'd they get 400 acres? Or, you know, I've, I've met so many people, they'll, they'll tell me, oh, we're going out to this. And, and it's sometimes it's shocking the kinds of resources that people have that you just bump into them and you learn they own a 400 acre farm, you know, 
like an hour away from where you actually live. So they live in that house and they have a 400 acre farm and they're, you know, currently refurbishing something on that property. And they own another, you know, they own something in Florida with, you don't know how they came by it. You don't know what they did to work and earn it. And the flesh will rise up and say, they didn't deserve that. They should be helping to pay for other people who don't have anything. And that's nothing but the devil talking. They, you never know how much they're giving philanthropically. You don't know if they're good tithers or not. And it's really none of your business. But we've allowed certain loud voices in this country to convince us that it is our job to make sure that whether people are working or not, because the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat, that people are going to eat anyway. And I'm not against a social safety net for, for our country, but it's gotten out of hand. And that's what our guest from last segment was talking about. Dr. Nelson was really expounding upon this idea that you can just look at a person and their circumstances and say they deserve more than that. And then to look at someone else and say, you have too much. You give something to that person over there. And so he expounded on it. When you're talking about charity, you look at your bottom line and you say, this is how much money we have after we've paid all our bills and taken a vacation and bought clothes and cowgirl boots. Ah, we have this much left. So we'll give some of that to charity. And you have other people who say, wow, I came into a windfall. I'm going to give off the top this percentage to charity. Everybody has their own way of figuring it out. But when it's a finite resource, you're like, this is all we can give. And then you have everybody who, when they're giving and it's from the pot of taxes, which is a never ending amount of money that the the legislators can just tweak this number and that number and instantly a billion dollars appears in the treasury. Because when you're talking about taxing hundreds of millions of people, a penny will do it. A percentage of 1% will do it. A half a percent will do it. It'll net you millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars on the state level, billions of dollars on the federal level. And so then people feel a lot more generous. Well, I've heard people say, I've had people say to me, well, the thing is 39% isn't enough. I'm like, how much do you pay? I pay a lot in taxes and I enjoy it. But do you pay 39%? That's not the point. They never want to tell you how much they pay. Like, well, 39%, you may think that sounds reasonable, but that's only the federal portion. What about their state and local taxes? That means that person's paying more than 51 cents on the dollar in tax. And when you say that, They'll we'll stop for a second. They'll say, but they can afford it. 51% of $5 million means you still have $2.5 million left. But is that the point? If you earned $5 million, what, who am I to say that you shouldn't keep most of it? Who am I to say you should keep less than half of that because $5 million is a lot? $5 million may be a lot to me. I mean, it is. It's a lot. But is it my job to say it's a lot for you? So these are conversations we're having because we've dumbed down our educational system and we've taken the Bible out of it. What we're talking about is covetousness, where you want to take what your neighbor has and you don't, there's no good reason for it. And I I think that's the most telling part of it is liberals used to say, well, it's for the poor, it's for this. Now they just say you're evil because you have too much, too much from a person who has air conditioning and uh, a dishwasher, you know, machines that do your work. Too much. You think that person has too much. We Americans actually have quite a bit. I mean, even compared to our Western nation cohorts in Europe, we have far more square footage in our homes than they do. We have more appliances that do our work on a daily basis. We use more water. We use more electricity. 
Europeans, that's why they say to us, you need to get in the Paris Climate Accord so you can transfer some of that wealth over to other nations that don't have as much as you because you're using too much. You have too much square footage. Too, your cars are too large. You use too much gas. You have too much. Really? Who are you to say that to me? You don't even live over here. You're not even a part of this country. This is a problem that we have. It's a huge problem that we have. So I agree the universal basic income, it's, it's a crock of malarkey. It's no good. And anytime you hear people talking about that, understand they just, they're just trying to get to communism in a roundabout way. They're just trying to get there. Now, I want to go back. Um, when we came into the show, we were listening to uh, Lieberman. And he is a, he's a Democrat, but he caucuses with the Democrats as an independent. And he was talking about Ocasio-Cortez. And this all ties together because it's socialism. Ocasio-Cortez, the new face of the Democratic Party, is advocating for socialism, a universal income, universal health care, uh, the ownership of the means of production by government, voted in by the people, et cetera, et cetera. He says, what is the Democratic Party going to be? Socialists cannot win in general and national elections with candidates like Ocasio-Cortez. It's number eight. You're asking a lot of important questions. So I'd say that there are certain uh, policies that may win in some districts like this one uh, in a Democratic primary, but they're not going to win in a general election statewide, certainly not in a national election for president. So if the victory of Ms. Ocasio-Cortez is ta- in, in Bronx and Queens is taken as the direction in which the Democratic Party should go nationally, Democratic Party is not going to elect a president in 2020. And he's right, because what ends up happening is you have a lot of voters out there who are quite honestly very disaffected. They're not the, the, the voters who don't vote at all. They're not people who don't vote, but they are sick to death of the rancor and the constant din of politics. They want to know information and news that will help them accomplish their goals, help them Uh, raise their families, help them get closer to God, help them uh, maybe learn a new skill or something that they can incorporate into their home business or things they're doing at their house. They have so many other interests and they have families and everything that goes along with that. So what they do is they wait until it's absolutely necessary to buff up on the issues, usually right after the primary. They don't vote in the primary. They just come in hot right after that. They start looking around, taking, they go to their websites that they trust And as they begin to poke around and check out what's going on, they come to understand that while they were away doing life, the Democrats have moved even farther to the left. And when they hear socialism, these are people who, as disaffected as they may be politically, they still remember their civics lessons about how socialism leads to communism and is responsible for the deaths of hundreds of millions of people and is the reason Venezuela is on fire and starving to death simultaneously right now. They know that. So they look at that and they're like, I can't, I can't, I can't do that because Bernie Sanders was burning up the campaign trail in certain states, liberal hotbeds. But nationally, the Democrats knew they could not have him as the nominee. Everyone kept saying Bernie Sanders will win. Yeah, he would have won. The millennials would have voted for him, a bunch of them, but he wasn't going to win people who understand what socialism is, people who listen to him. If you ever listen to one of his 30-minute interviews on universal health care where he admits that universal health care doesn't work in Great Britain and it doesn't work the way it's intended in Canada, but those are experiments, it would work in America because we would make it work. If you've ever heard that audio, you know this is a man 
who is not only peddling untested ideas and things that are absolutely unworkable, but that he doesn't even take the time to try to figure out how something that works on a tiny island nation like Great Britain and works poorly there, or how there's a tiered medical system in Canada where everybody who can't afford any better is on universal health care and it's horrible. And then everyone who has enough money has private health care that they pay for out of their pocket, even though they're taxed to pay for the universal health care. And then there's the ones who fall through the cracks who don't really have anything. They have universal health care, but they don't really access it. They're just they're living below the poverty line. He wants to take countries that have not even a third of the number of people that we have, not even a tenth of our landmass and compare us to them and say we should do what they're doing. Instead of just packing up and moving to Great Britain or Canada, they'd be happy to have him. Why doesn't he just move there? Why does he try to bring that garbage over here and force it on the rest of us? So this is what we're looking at. You know, nationally, I I couldn't agree more that there's no way the Democrats run some Democratic Socialist light and win the national election, not against Donald Trump. And even as far left as the party has moved and as millennials tend to vote, there's still some common sense operating in this country. And there's still those of us who, uh, you know, the the remnant, the Christians, the praying Christians, the ones who you all have seen that meme. um, The 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 devil starts shaking when I I get out of uh, get out of bed in the morning, not because my feet hit the floor, but because I'm on my knees praying, praying for everything. That's who we have to be. It's not that we're so courageous that we're never afraid or that we never see what's happening and what's coming down the pike and think, Lord, have mercy. It's that we know the author and finisher of our faith. We have to know that and then we have to act on it. We have to pray for those who are placed in authority over us. If you're a Christian and you listen to this show and you hate Donald Trump, that hatred is sin. Let it go. Leave it at the feet of the cross and start praying for him. You can't hate someone that you pray for. In the end, that's where the rubber is going to meet the road, my friends. Good night. Have a blessed evening, and I'll be back with you tomorrow. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of Urban Family Talk, Urban Family Communications, or American Family Association.